Hi, thanks for coming back for the Digital Sociology Podcast with me, Chris Till. In this episode, which is episode six of the podcast, I'm talking to the well, um, world-renowned, really, uh, sociologist uh, Deborah Lupton, um, who, for many people, won't need any introduction, but I will be introducing her in just a moment anyway. Um, but she's someone who's written on a variety of uh, sociological topics uh, over the over the years, and recently has been uh, leading the field really in many ways in uh, digital sociology. So it was great to be able to talk to her. Um, so I conducted this interview over Skype, and the quality at times is a little bit ropey. Um, but I thought it's worth persevering with um, because it was great to talk to Deborah and. Um, she has some really interesting things to say about um, about digital sociology and um, some of the work she's she's previously done and that she's that she's working on uh, at the moment and will be um, working on in the future. So I thought it was, uh, it was really valuable um, and people would uh, really get some interesting stuff from it. Uh, so um, here's my interview with Deborah. So we should be recording now. So I'll do my kind of cheesy little um, intro. <laughs> so, hello. Um, so now I'm speaking to Deborah Lupton, who is the Centenary Research Professor um, at the News and Media Research Centre in the Faculty of Arts and Design at the University of Canberra. And um, Deborah is someone who many people will be familiar with through her um, many, many um, works, including 15 books, over 150 journal articles and book chapters on a variety of topics. Um, she's kind of written across uh, many areas of uh, the social sciences. Uh, I think she's been particularly influential on in sociology of health and medicine, public health, risk, the body, um, and more recently uh, looking at uh, digital sociology. And it's uh, a few of these different areas which we'll talk about today, I think, with Deborah, um, particularly the, the digital elements and how that kind of uh, crosses over with health and with those issues we've been discussing on this podcast so far. So, uh, hello, Deborah. Hi there, Chris. It's good to speak to you uh, from across many different, uh, from across many, many miles and uh, many different time zones as well. Um, so, uh, it's kind of it's late at night here in the UK, but um, early on a kind of a, a sunny morning, I think, in in Canberra. Uh, yes, so, indeed. <laughs> so um, we're going to talk about um, a, a few different issues, but um, first of all, I wanted to ask you about um, the recent work which you've been doing in the last couple of years, uh, where you've been, I think, at the forefront of defining what digital sociology is um, and kind of applying that to health. So um, how would you kind of characterize your approach to digital sociology? Uh, well, I've actually, it's interesting, Chris, I've been writing about digital technologies for a long time, mm. um, at the same time, sort of parallel to writing about health and illness. There have mm. been two interests of mine ever since that I've been an early career academic um, in fact, media media representations of health and illness have also been a you know a big focus of mine. It was actually what my PhD focused on was representations of HIV and AIDS in the Australian press. So I was able to bring the sociology of health and illness with the sociology of media together just in my PhD. And ever since I've been I've been doing that um, in many different ways. And I actually got interested in how people were using computing technologies back in the 90s through my interest in HIV and AIDS because I started um, looking at the metaphors of disease and virality and embodiment in discourses on, on HIV as part of my thesis and I wrote a few things out of that for the thesis. And then of course in the, in the so this was the early 90s. Um, then we had personal computers becoming ever more prevalent in the workplace, the academic workplace included. 
And that, that was a big change in my own. Personal computers came in when I was still a student and then they, they just started proliferating in the workplace and at home in, into the um, in late 1980s into the early 1990s. So I was sort of experiencing that as an academic and as a student. Um, and personally, this sort of beginning of, of people using computers as part of their everyday lives. Mm. Um, and as part of that, People were adjusting to what it meant to, to use computers, what the implications were for their work practices, for their leisure practices, for their sense of embodiment. Um, and then we had, in the mid-1990s, this sort of moral panic around computer viruses. And because I was working on viral metaphors related to disease, it really struck me how interesting it was that we were talking about personal computers as embodied subjects, as, you know, human, in fact, human embodied subjects that were liable to being virally affected and, you know, becoming diseased and, in fact, transmitting that disease to other computers, very similar kinds of discourses to HIV infection. So I, I started writing a few things. I wrote a piece for Body and Society, the Journal Body and Society, on the what I called the embodied slash... Um, you know, embodied computer slash user, when I started to think through these issues of how we thought about computers as sort of human beings and how we related to them and physically interacted with them. And I wrote another piece on the viral metaphor in computing for the general cultural studies. So it was really my interest in health and illness that actually started making me become interested in, in, in computing. So I was writing all that sort of stuff back in the 90s. Um, and I also did a few research projects looking at how people were using computers at work and appropriated them and gave them names and personalities mm. and decorated them. Um, again, looking at the personal relationships we have with our computers and how we conceptualise this sort of quite new technology and incorporate this new technology into our everyday lives. And um, so when um, new digital technologies began to emerge in the early 2000s, we then got you know, wearable computing, we got portable computing, mobile computing, Wi-Fi. So, so a whole new sort of new era be began to emerge around just the sheer embodied nature of, of our personal computing, the fact that we were now wearing them or carrying them in our pockets. That was a mm. huge shift from the, the early days of personal computing when they were basically these big, big things sitting on our desks and they weren't particularly mobile. We did have laptops, but they were very heavy and clunky. So that, that to me is a sort of sociologist of, of computed, computing technologies really began to make me think again about how, how we are using these technologies. And um, so that, and, and when I began thinking about computing technologies again, I also began noticing that there was an, an area of anthropology called digital anthropology that had been quite well established, particularly through the work of Danny Miller and colleagues at UCL. And it, it, I began thinking, I was reading this work, it was very interesting work, and I began thinking, well, why don't we have an area of sociology called digital sociology? I mean, we kind of did, but hardly anyone was using this terminology a few years ago. And Yes, digital anthropology was a very well-established subdiscipline of anthropology. And sociologists had been writing about digital technologies for a long time, but they weren't using that terminology, digital sociology. And it seemed to me that that term was an easy term that encompassed all the very, you know, the different technologies that were around now. Um, instead of saying, say, the sociology of computing or sociology of the web or, you know, that, that those kinds of terms that we, we did tend to use in the past, digital sociology just encompassed all those things. So I, I just started writing about that and, and making a sort of, I guess, manifesto in my work for what I thought digital sociology should be and, you know, it's obviously my own personal interpretation, but, but built on, a, you know, actually two decades of, of work on on. on sociology of computing. So um, I, I, I generated this sort of fourfold um, definition and it includes things like understanding how people use digital technologies, which we've been doing for a long time in sociology, but also how sociologists can themselves be 
using digital media and devices and software themselves to promote their work, but also conduct research, um, you know, harvesting big data, for example. And, and that's sort of the third aspect, that sort of computational um, analysis of digital data is, is the third aspect of digital sociology that's beginning to, to get some attention now. And the fourth aspect, though, to me, the most important is that reflexive idea of, of you know, we as sociologists are constantly being reflexive in, in our own practices and the ways that we are, you know, both contributing to the social world and analysing it at the, at the same time. So that's that fourth key critical dimension that, that I would include in, in the concept of digital sociology. That's really interesting, uh, especially how, for you in particular, the, the health uh, aspect and the digital aspect uh, kind of come together and that um, sort of network imaginary if you like that you identified in both in that kind of the 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 HIV the with the, the, the virality of the moving around kind of networks and that's often been I think um, interpreted or kind of visualized in that kind of way of viruses moving around um, and that same kind of uh, imaginary which the digital or, or the kind of the network connected aspects of the digital makes us think of uh, and I'd, I'd never really I'd never really quite put those things together um, but it seems to me that, that that network metaphor has become um, it, it's been around for quite a, quite a while in the social sciences but it seems to have um, really kind of um, built up some steam again in, in the last in the last few years I think that idea of thinking of us as networks, um, as opposed to as groups or, or, or kind of uh, or, or just as individuals, um, and that's kind of that's really interesting to me. Um, I wonder to what extent do you think um, has that 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 network imaginary been been kind of encouraged or pushed by? By the use of these technologies, or do do you think that that's something they're in kind of inherent in, in in social life anyway? Um, well, I think what's happening is because we we've now got social media, which again is a re relatively recent mm. technology in the past twelve years or so, when Facebook first started, and then the others came on board, like Twitter and, and Instagram, and, and you know the more recent ones, um, Snapchat, and so on. Um, I actually, I, I can see a change really. We don't, we, we're not talking so much about, I mean, the, the idea of social networks now is sort of enfolded in, in into social media because it's also, mm. it's, it's an assumption that there'll be a network there when we use the term social media. The fact that the, the social and media are put together in that term just implies that there's a network operating. Mm. Uh, so for a while people did talk about social media networks and things, but we tend not to even use that term anymore. We just assume that there will be a network there. Um, and I think um, what's happening when we look at the phenomenon of social media, which particularly in the case of Facebook has become such a, such a dominant phenomenon in many people's social relationships and social encounters, it doesn't really, I mean, there's a whole sort of you know, discourse about, oh, people are going on social media and that means they're not really being properly social because they're not, you know, engaging mm. properly social face-to-face -face. and that's what social should be, you know, actually physically being in the same room with someone. Well, I, I completely disagree with that because, you know, you see social media as complementary to face-to-face. To -face. Uh, I mean, that's how it operates. It's complementary and it also extends face-to-face. Encounters, and I don't think it does anything at all to diminish. In fact, it it, it really just um, extends people's social networks and social relationships, and and that is particularly coming out in my research that I've done recently on women who who are pregnant or in the early years of motherhood, and talking to them about the digital media they use, and they are desperate to interact with other women. Uh, it's a lifeline for them. Social media is a lifeline for them. There's so so many women in that situation, particularly once they've had their baby and they're in, you know, at home um, with this tiny little thing that they're, they're um, coping with caring for. Um, 
they're feeling very lonely and isolated and social media is, is just an absolute godsend for them. And so they talk about how, you know, how important it is to them to be able to connect with other women at any time of the day or night, which social media and Wi-Fi computing now affords, and um, get support and just chat with people and get some, um, you know, ideas if, if something seems to be going wrong. Um, and But what they also do, and this gets back to the complementary na nature of social media, is they have Facebook pages, which are local groups, and um, they arrange face-to-face -face meetings through their Facebook pages. So they're doing both. <laughs> and it's, it's so vital. And in fact, they want more of that. They want more of connecting. When, when, we ask, when I ask them what, what, is it, what it is you'd like from digital media that you're not getting, what they're wanting is being able to have more contact with women in their area and space and doing that through social media. And they're wanting more contact with health providers online. So being able to contact a health care provider at any time of the night or day mm -hmm. if they're worried about their baby. Uh, so all this, oh, you know, social media is ruining friendships and relationships. You know, well, it needs a nuanced thing, but I, I have to say that a lot of my empirical research suggests in fact, the opposite. Yeah, that's and that's interesting. Uh, again, how they um, those two realms, the, the kind of the, the digital and the, and the non-digital, are actually perhaps increasingly difficult to talk about as separate anyway. And I think I think I'm sure what you're saying is right that increasingly people see them as being simply kind of intertwined. And I think you've um, you. I think, uh, if I'm right, that you, you've partly kind of characterised this this um, uh, this experience of that uh, through use of the term where you, where you've talked about digital data as a companion species, um, suggesting that we become new, we're becoming new hybrid beings through our engagement engagement with with data and with these kinds of technologies. Um, that it's not it's not as you say it's not entirely a good or entirely a bad. Um, situation, the, the increasing incorporation of these things, these technologies in, into our lives, but it is it is transforming us. Um, is that how you would you would characterise that that kind of transformation we're going through as uh, as becoming new hybrid beings? Yes, well, that um, that particular piece you're referring to that was in the journal Big Data and Society is me yeah. trying to having a bit of a riff, really, and just trying to play around with. In fact, getting back to what I was doing early on in the 90s about this notion of, um, uh, you know, the embodied computer slash user, just how how uh, porous the boundaries are between us and our devices, and in this case, us and our data. So that was me trying to think through, and that's you know, one of my major research questions that I'm thinking through a lot at the moment, is this ontology of data and personal data, and how we think of ourselves and our bodies in response to our data. And I think we, there's a lot of theorizing yet to be done about that because again, it's a, it's a new phenomenon, this fact that these, these data are being generated so prolific, prolifically about us constantly. And that, of course, we often, that, that happens in very mysterious ways to the average person. They don't know mm. how it's happening or where the data are going and who's using those data. But in some cases, we do have access to our data. We do get those data delivered back to us, whether it's a face, you know, how many Facebook likes we've had or followers we have on Twitter, or in our case, how many citations we have on Google Scholar or academics. Or, you know, if you are a self-tracker who wants to track various aspects of your life, you have many opportunities to see things like your sleep habits, your fitness habits, your dietary habits, and so on. Um, so in some cases, people are um, obliged or confronted with or choose to engage with these data. And, make, and, and when they are um, coming to coming face to face with these data, whether they're looking at it on a you know, their iPhone, you know, graph that's or a, you know, some other metric, the Facebook metrics I'm talking about, for example, they are they are forced with making sense of these data and understanding these data and, and sort of coming to terms with how valuable they are. Are they valuable? Yes or no, you know, in what ways? Are they valid? Are they accurate? What do they tell me about myself or what what don't they tell me about them myself? So Quite a few of the projects I'm doing at the moment are addressing those questions and asking people, in fact, um, you know, what do these data mean to you? Um, 
you know, if your body's telling you something about yourself, say when you're cycling, that's one of the projects I've been doing, cycling, self-tracking. If your body is telling you something about that cycle trip that you just made, but your data's telling you something else, how do you negotiate those differences? Mm. And how are they complementary, but how do they diverge? And then, therefore, you know, what sense can you make? So that's um, when, when, we, when I was talking about um, digital data assemblages as companion species, I was, yeah, that's me having just a little bit of a, a riff on Donna Haraway's work. And I think that for me, it's me thinking through those ontologies of, of just when these data are presented to us. Um, that I like the way she talks about the companion species. And of course, she's talking about things like pets but, and dogs and so on. But um, I, I think that it has some, some value there, that terminology there of companion species for thinking about our data assemblages because like animals who are companion species, they, they co and they share our lives with us like our pets. They, we co-evolve with them. You know, they, mm. We have bred dogs to be in a certain way, but they themselves, you know, train us in certain ways to behave in certain ways. And I think that there may be some use in thinking through about our digital data in, in those ways as well. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's, it's the way that they reflect. Um, we, we reflect on them. They kind of reflect ourselves back at us um, in various ways. And I, I, um, I kind of experienced that. I had an email from Spotify today um, telling me, giving me kind of a summary of my year of listening. And it, and it said my three most um, kind of uh, listened to songs were, and one of them was a Bee Gees song, which I didn't know I'd even listened to. Um, <laughs> I didn't remember it. And I mean, my, my girlfriend uses my Spotify account as well, so perhaps uh, it was her, but she claims it claims not. But apparently, I've been listening to the Bee Gees a lot, um, and this doesn't really fit with my <laughs> my kind of self identity very well. I don't think, um, but. Clearly, it's in there somewhere, but that that kind of um, that kind of strange reflecting back that you get, and as you said, you get back in the research you've done with um, uh, with with cyclists who use data a lot, who's uh, tracking Strava, this kind of thing. Uh, uh, but that kind of experience is more and more um, built into our everyday lives. I think now um, this kind of production of uh, again, which you've I think you you've uh, written about as uh, data doubles. And our kind of relationship with that is it is quite strange. It's in that we I think we're seeing ourselves in the data, and also sort of living alongside it in this strange kind of way. Yes. Well, I, I did start talking about data doubles, um, but I've actually moved on from that because I think the oh. data double metaphor actually is a little bit restrictive in that mm. it, it almost implies this sort of just a reflection in a way mm. or a, some kind of shadow, you know. And that's why I t I like, I'm thinking about other ways of describing I, I like the, the data assemblage idea a bit better because it's just a, a more sophisticated way of, of acknowledging that it involves the technologies we're using and devices and software as well as the actual data that are generated as well as our bodies and practices and feelings. And, you know, that's another is issue I'm really interested in, our, our emotional responses to our data. And I've developed this concept called data sense and that I'm working on at the moment. And that, in, that incorporates the notion that when we're making sense of our data, i.e. understanding our data and giving some meaning to it, we're bringing in, there are digital sensors involved that sense our bodies and our practices, but there's also our human senses, mm -hmm. um, the five senses that we have, our embodied senses. And there's, so these three things are all feeding off each other, that the sensors, the senses, and the sense-making um, and, you know, again, I would, I would argue that, you know, there's this term data literacy that's banded, bandied around these days. And I think, again, that's a little bit restrictive. I think this notion of literacy is, you know, it draws out of education discourse. But I think data sense to me makes, make, well, makes a lot more sense because um, it's, it's, it just underpins this idea that it's an embodied, it's an embodied practice. Uh, and including sense making, but also sensory perceptions that we make of the world, and, and then juggling those those sensations and sense making with 
with our confrontations with, with these data, which can be themselves about our senses. So it's actually a very, mm. a very complex interaction. And yeah, I'm, I'm, I think there's a lot more work there to be done both in terms of empirical work and, and sort of theorising around what exactly is going on there. That's a that's a really interesting way of seeing that I think and um, and it's I, I think you're right about the this notion of data literacy suggests a kind of uh, a deficit if you're not engaging with with these technologies um, or with data in a, a certain a certain kind of way um, and I think something that we've probably all um, observed is the way that different people engage with the digital um, in in different ways and we see that. Uh, particularly uh, very young children who can who can use things often like uh, like phones or, or tablet computers iPads in a quite a sophisticated way at a kind of a young age and uh, before they're even a long time before they're literate um, and clearly that uh, sense um, senses of, of various kinds seems to play quite a, lot, a big part in that so I think I think there's a lot in that concept. Well, what's interesting there, Chris, is that, of course, they're engaging with those particular devices with their, in a very sensory way with mm. the, the touch screen, mm. which was not the case for young children before mm. those kind of technologies. You know, they were using the, the um, keypads connected to, to computers, which is a more physically removed, mm. actual embodied practice from the touch screen experience, which, and in the fact that Children can swipe at a young age, very young age, as babies. Basically, they can they can therefore start to engage with these devices uh, in ways that they couldn't previously, just just because of the affordance, that particular technological affordance. And it's a, again, it's a very embodied practice. You're actually physically touching the screen, mm. and you're making the screen do things with your fingers. Um, so from from now, from, you know, at the moment, that generation of children, they're they're learning from, as you say, pre pre sort of even pre verbally literate um, uh, you know stages of their development how to interact with the technologies that involve handling actually handling them and in some cases as we're getting now with you know applying wearable technologies to babies uh, you know can get um, tracking devices for babies in their in their onesies or you know to wear on their ankle and so on or a little sock so <laughs> You know, babies themselves are dressed in technologies in some case by their anxious parents who want to track their biometrics. Yes, exactly. And there's, um, it seems that the uh, young children and babies is, a, I think, is a big growth market for um, for that kind of digital tracking. Um, I'd just like to say a, a little bit about, or ask a little bit about that uh, that issue of tracking, which is some uh, digital tracking, self tracking, which you, you've written a lot about in in the last few years, and and you wrote a book um, called uh, the Quantified Self, um, which I think was published um, uh, this year, earlier this year. Yeah, um, about six months ago. And um, which was a a, a really um, important book on the topic, a really um, fascinating book. Um, the, there's lots of stuff in there that I found interesting. Um, one of the one of the really um, fascinating parts I thought was the, the way that you characterised um, how the the production of all this uh, of the data uh, on our bodies that, that we have um, is increasingly seen in terms of um, notions of fluidity and that managing um, managing the, the data on our body is often seen in terms of containing that that fluidity um, and for me this is a, a kind of a, a really interesting idea that uh, it seems to link with um, other notions around that, that people uh, have discussed people like Luther Rigore around uh, the body as kind of leaky and kind of an abject and this kind of idea and the way that they get mirrored um, I just wonder if you could say a bit about that concept of, of data fluidity and how it, it, it's um, the kind of pressure to contain that, and particularly in a gendered context. 
Um, well, I think again, it's, it gets back to this um, ontology of data and how we how we're trying to conceptualise data and make sense of that data. So, when the whole big data phenomenon began to receive a lot of media attention, um, metaphors of fluidity were often used. So, the you know, data flows, data streams, data tsunamis, data data waves. You know, all those all those sorts of metaphors are very commonly used to describe big data and. They sort of they demonstrated an ambivalence because on the one hand it was this kind of appreciation of the hugeness of, of big data, the fact that now there are all these digital data sets that were could now be incredibly useful in all sorts of ways and isn't this wonderful and but at the and you know, there's constant flows and um, that is one of the things that have seen that have seemed to be a positive thing about big data: the fact they're constantly generated and in real time, often, uh, and, and therefore people can, you know, businesses, for example, or governments can can um, therefore get wonderful insights into people's practices or even economic change or you know agricultural uh, dimensions. There's all sorts of things that can be measured with big data. But on the other hand, what, what, what you see in this representation of big data is this sort of overwhelmingness of it, the fact that it is almost too big. And, you know, how do we deal with this hugeness of data and this constant proliferation of data? So there's a, that ambivalence there that, that, that's used, that comes out in this metaphor of fluidity. Um, and as you say, that, that if we, we then start to think about how, you know, individuals themselves start to think about their data, um, the same kind of ambivalence is demonstrated in those metaphors of fluidity. So if we look again at how people make sense of their data, there's often, there's another project that I've done with Mike Michael looking at public understandings of big data. And what we found there when people were talking about, when we asked people to talk about where their data go, how their data were generated, and who accesses their data, again, there's this ambivalence about the continuous and the sort of profligate nature of these data and, and also the fact that that it's very hard for us to know what happens to our data. Um, and if you if you're going to get back to that um, that metaphor of the body and how we think about our data as companion species or in this case our data as flows out of us that our body generates for us. Um, and then flows out of our bodies in uncontained ways, then yes, we, we get another ambivalence about that because we lose control over those data. Once they've flowed from us into the data cloud, again, a, you know, a fluid, the cloud is a, a, wet, <laughs> a wet kind of metaphor of made up of, you know, tiny droplets of water. Um, evaporated water. So, you know, the, it's like, yeah, it's like the data evaporate out of us evaporate up into the cloud and uh, can and once that happens we've lost control over those data and, 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 as, and as you say there's a lot of very interesting philosophical in particular and feminist philosophical work around flows out of the body and the gender nature of that of course women's bodies have, have traditionally been seen as more leaky than than men's bodies mm-hmm. and so there is there can be I mean it's I'm, I'm not sure if, if in terms of the way these da- uh, these metaphors are applied to data, whether there is a hugely gendered aspect of it at the moment. I think both genders tend to conceptualise their data in similar ways. Mm-hmm. But I think you're right in, in, in that we can go back to very sort of age-old anxieties about the containment of the body. When we're thinking about contemporary anxieties about the containment of, of data, yeah, I think so. And I suppose there's perhaps this sense that uh, certainly in some contexts with certain kinds of data that almost perhaps women have got more more to lose by not being in control of that data um, in terms of sensitive images or, or, or similar things. Um, uh, we can think about the kind of bullying that's gone on um, through... Um, the, the, the possession of kind of uh, naked photos and, and that kind of thing, um, which I think I think you mentioned in the book, um, and also that perhaps uh, images um, images of women are, are seen as being potentially kind of problematic or something they want to be, uh, they feel like they need to be more in control of. You know, we hear about 
uh, teenage girls taking hundreds of photographs before they choose the ones that they they, that they put on Instagram or or, or, or wherever else. Um, so that this perhaps maybe. The, the, the dangers are seen as uh, of not being control of that data are seen as being maybe perhaps more acute for for women in some contexts. Yeah, I think yeah, you're right. And those very specific contexts, um, uh, yes, yeah, control. It's and we're talking, I guess, as you say, data. There, we're talk, we're using the notion of more of the image, the image, the visual image there. Yeah. Um, and yeah, there's very very specific issues around images of women's bodies um, and how how they might be um, get out of women's control which yes we see in the sort of um, anxieties around sexting and uh, revenge porn and, and so on and even around the whole uh, moral meaning sort of given to selfies uh, there's this idea yeah. that young women in particular are just too prolific in their rep- self-representation via selfie and, you know, these supposed narcissistic, narcissistic. And, yeah, yeah. yeah, and it's just encouraging this narcissism and focus on the, on the appearance mm. and, and so on. Um, so, but I think you're right to talk about, I mean, I, I was doing an interview recently with um, the Robert Wood Foundation about personal health data. They're interested in uh, writing a report on that and, again, data security and data privacy. And one thing that I constantly emphasised was that health data are not just um, metrics about the body, they're also images. Mm. And many people who engage on YouTube or Instagram uh, represent their bodies you know, that are going through some kind of disease or health condition visually. And we're moving now towards a far more visual culture mm. with the use of emoticons, uh, emojis, um, the the very popular nature of using images on Facebook videos as well, uh, Instagram, popularity of Instagram. We, we are, I mean, even when we text people these, these days, we, we're you know, encouraged by our smartphones to use emojis with the latest version of iOS at least. Um, yeah. So... You are, you are, we are very much moving towards that communication via the visual in many forms of digital media. Um, and we need to, we need to, as sociologists, we need to pay more attention to that because sociologists haven't always been very good at understanding visual culture. Some of us have, but it's been a sort of very marginalised mm. field of sociology. But if we are going to be, um, as digital sociologists, which I think all sociologists need to be, given the nature of the social, digitised nature of the social world, we all need to be digital sociologists in some way or another. Um, and and we also, many of us need to start um, coming to terms with the, the visual nature of digital sociology. That is definitely an unexplored area that needs way more way more research and, and I'll just give an example again of some of the stuff I've been doing recently on um, uh, food and embodiment and body types and body weights. So I recently edited a special issue of the journal Fat Studies on that topic of body weight and size and digital media and I wrote an introduction, a fairly extensive introduction for that for that special issue and what I talked, some of what I talked about in that introduction was the, was the visual nature of representations of bodies, thin bodies and fat bodies on digital media. Things like memes, things like gifs, things like, um, you know, the, the very short videos that you get in some, in some uh, social media um, representations. And if you've, so I did a, a quick and dirty look at, you know, gifs around thin bodies and fat bodies. And what came out, what was really interesting was it was the male body that was particularly held up for ridicule. Right. For both thin thin bodies and fat bodies. If you look at gifs and memes around using a search term fat, fat bodies or thin bodies, um, the skinny man, the thin man is this, you know, object of ridicule. Mm-hmm. The thin woman, no, of course she isn't because she's the ideal type yeah. Female body, you know, we don't make fun of thin women. They're they're the ideal, but thin men get a lot of body shaming in these media. And if we look again at fat bodies, 
interestingly enough, the fat male body is, is far more the topic for ridicule in gifs and memes than, a, than is the fat female body. So there you go. That's a really, I think, that's a really interesting phenomenon. But uh, have sociologists or anyone else really looked at this? No, they haven't. But I think given the prevalence of using these forms of, of illustration uh, mm. in digital media, we need to be starting to, to look at these, these kind of media. That's fascinating, and especially uh, how, because the kind of format or the, the structure of a particular media does have an impact on what kinds of things tend to circulate around it. And so uh, d did you make sense of that, of that, of that uh, prevalence of the male body in those, um, those different contexts? Could, could you give a reason for that, or is that just an, an, an interesting uh, observation? Um, well, I didn't. I didn't. I couldn't go too much into it in my introduction, which is a very broad-ranging sort of overview. And as I said, it was a pretty quick and dirty. I just thought to myself, "Gee, I must look at this and let's go and see how these how bodies." Just to add to the introduction, but I, I am doing a revised version of my book, Fat. Yeah. Uh, and I want to include a lot more material in the revised version on mm. digital media, so I will be spending a lot more time looking at these digital media formats um, in in the book when I when I do the revised version. And I do want to, I will obviously be delving way more into that because I think, um, you know, if we, if we get back to fat studies, um, there's been a lot of focus on fat female bodies. Yeah. Uh, the scholars who've engaged in fat studies, the act, fat activists, tend to be very overwhelmingly women and feminist women. Uh, you know, I'm one of them. Uh, I've got nothing, you know, nothing against that. But what that means is that the fat male body and the whole issue of body shaming around male body mm. hasn't really been addressed as much as it should have been. Mm. And, you know, given that there's, there's evidence that young men in particular are becoming far more aware of their, the physical shape and size of their, and appearance of their bodies and some may be taking steroids and, you know, uh, health affecting practices like that or even starving themselves. Yeah. Um, and you know, engaging those forms of eating disorders, you know, they have been a neglected. Men have been a neglected area in terms of those uh, the literature and research on on fat on fat shaming and you know body shaming in general. Uh, so yes, absolutely, I would see this as an area that really needs a lot more uh, scholarly attention. Yeah, I think uh, you're absolutely right with that, and I think probably the most uh, work that's been done that is, is more historical kind of historic analyses of. Um, uh, uh, fat men's bodies it, it, there's still very little of that but there's some work's been done on that but very little that's, that's kind of uh, sociological um, and there's this interesting thing I suppose that men's bodies often get aligned more with um, the sort of state of the nation uh, in, in terms of whether that's in terms of the military or, or sports or just uh, the, the state of men's bodies as, as throughout history uh, has been identified as being, uh, particularly whenever there's been a war, there's some kind of reflection of the health of, of, uh, of the nation in, in a different way. And so that, that gender relationship, um, it tends to, uh, it, even, even in that context, the, the male tends to get aligned with the public uh, in a different way, uh, I think. Um, just to kind of move on to something um, different, um, so you, you've conducted a lot of work in the past uh, around risk, um, and I, would, I wondered if you had any thoughts on what kind of relationship, uh, what kind of impact the the digital in relation to uh, health has had um, on on risk. Has risk um, become um, kind of maintained its its kind of position in relation to? Uh, health and particularly kind of public health discourses, because you, you've written around um, about the kind of the, the digitization of health promotion, uh, and health promotion is obviously as risk has been central to that. Um, could you say anything about about what relationship you think risk plays in the, in that context today? Um, yes, well, as you say, I've I've written a lot on risk in the past. I've sort of jumped on the. Society bandwagon when that was <laughs> rolling along, um, but what what I'm um, what I'm finding now is the the whole risk society thesis has had its moment to some extent. Mm. So what I think you know, and it had a good moment, and there were many of us writing about 
sociology of risk. Um, again, back in the sort of late 90s into the early 2000s was the really peak risk society yeah. time. Um, but, it, you know, and sociology goes through fads and fashions. And if you're around for long enough, as I now have been, I suppose I've been, a, um, you know, a, an academic in sociology now for about... Um, getting on for 22 years or so, 23 years, um, so two decades or so. And, you know, you do, if you've been around for that long, you do see things come and go, you know. Mm. And, and, and then that's just the nature of any kind of discipline, I think, and particularly social theory-related and social research-related discipline. You People get excited about new theories, yeah. um, new approaches, and, you know, I, I certainly do, and... Um, that's how we operate. So I think what we, if we're going to do something new with risk, sociology of risk, we need to start, yeah, moving it forward really, rather than just saying the same old thing. So, so, we, but one way that can be done is bringing digital sociology into the sociology of risk, because that has hardly happened mm. as yet. Um, and before his untimely death a couple of years ago, Ulrich Beck did start to make some comments yeah. in kind of interviews rather than more formal written work about what he saw as globalised risk society. Yeah. And um, I wrote a chapter for this handbook on risk studies, handbook of risk studies that came out this year, on digital risk society, where I tried to do that. In fact, you know, try and um, bring risk society into digital sociology and, and look at the possibilities for that. And I mentioned Beck's comments there as well, but you know they were very preliminary comments that he made, and he really was talking about issues around privacy, you know, and the fact that people engaging online, uh, their data aren't secure, and that he only really made a few comments about that, and then of course he not long after he he died, so he wasn't able to expand on that. But I think those of us who have worked with Beck and other people's writings, the Cody and concepts of risk, for example. Uh, it's up to us really to, or up to new scholars for that matter, to start to, to look at those areas. And I did, I did um, edit a special issue of Health, Risk and Society, the journal, last year uh, that looked at digitised health, uh, health and um, medicine. So I've been trying to make a few forays into, into those areas, but I think there's, again, there's way more to be done there. Um, and, you know, for example, just to bring the whole back... Back again to data privacy and security, mm. uh, there's a lot of risk discourse floating around in public forums about the risks that we pose when we do uh, reveal ourselves via our digital interactions, whether they're deliberate or unintended. Um, and, you know, that, the, that citizens should be paying more attention to where their data go and protecting themselves from data hacks. There's a lot of that around cyber security, um, around risk. In, in getting back to your question about um, health promotion and, and risk, digitised health promotion and risk, then yeah, yeah, again, we can see as there has been for a long time that the concept of risk is a very central concept still in mm. how health promoters talk about um, you know, the threats that people may face to their health. And so they're now using digital technologies to try and publicise risks to people and get them to change their behaviour mm. as, you know, is part of what they they try and do as part of their professional practice. Um, what, I'm, what I argue in what I've been writing about digitised health promotion is that we see there, even though that public health has tended to move in the last two decades towards this notion of... Um, non-individualised responsibility, you know, that it should be infrastructural change and government sort of policy change around things like public transport and leisure facilities and, you know, the cost of food and, you know, regulation of food, all those things. You see that in the new public health discourse. That is very yeah. much a dominant discourse that we should move towards, you know, uh, policy-related um, public health that, that gets away from victim blaming, but I am perceiving that in 
concepts of digitised health promotion, we're getting back to victim blaming, we're getting back to personal responsibility. You know, let's give someone an app that can measure their, uh, you know, steps, and then they'll know how lazy they are, and, you know, the app nag them, you know, and tell them to get up more, or whatever. So I'm seeing that. So we're getting, I'm, I'm arguing that we're getting that return to, to personal responsibility, very much so if we look at the kinds of apps uh, that are marketed and the kinds of strategies that, pub, that health promoters are talking about. Right, I think uh, I've, I've, I've kept you for quite a long time, so I don't want to take uh, up too much of your time, but um, that's been, it's been a really uh, interesting uh, just, um, uh, chat, uh, really good uh, to talk to you and, um, and to hear about some of your work. And what I'll do is... Uh, on, when, when this podcast goes up on, on my blog, I'll, I'll put up some links to the, some of the things we've been talking about, so people can follow up on this. But um, uh, thanks again for talking to me, uh, Deborah, and it's good to see you, and uh, hope to see you again soon. Yeah, thanks, Chris. It's been a pleasure. Great. Thanks. That was my interview with uh, Deborah Lupton. Um, if you've got any comments, uh, questions, or uh, anything you'd like to um, say about that episode, you can uh, go to my blog. Uh, this is not a sociology blog, uh, where you can also find some links and some further details um, about this episode. Um, and you can find me on Twitter at Chris H Till. You can also follow Deborah at D A Lupton, uh, and you can take a look at her blog. Uh, which is called This Sociological Life uh, and is at simplysociology.wordpress.com Next time I'll be talking to Justine Gagneau about her work on Facebook and peer-to-peer surveillance so kind of how people are checking each other out online on social media For this podcast the theme music was Welcome to Video Game Island by Mole and the incidental music was Disco Stomp by Jonas78 and they were both used on a Creative Commons license. See you next week. (laughs) 